Maybe that's why people are so rude on flights, because people schedule for flights when they normally wouldn't be their best selves. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Not that it excuses any of the bad behavior we see, but I don't know. Yeah. I mean, no one's their best self when they have to be up at like 3.30 in the morning for a flight. So you get there two hours ahead and then... Yeah. Yeah. And then your seats are like, you're squished in like sardines with your <laughs> knees up and near your chin. You have to be close to people who you don't know. I put my AirPods in even if I'm not listening to any music because I don't want anyone to talk to me. Oh yeah. It's an accessory. It's like a flight accessory. Yes. I actually have the noise canceling headphones. Yep. The do not bother me headphones. <laughs> but I f seem to always be on the flight next to the person who just wants to talk. Yeah. They want to chit chat and know everything about you. Oh, yeah. And you're like literally a captive audience in those situations. Yeah. You cannot go anywhere. I'm a very solitary flyer. I want to listen to my music or my podcast or sleep. Heaven forbid. Same. See, even you need your solitary time on an airplane. Oh, yeah. I am very warm with strangers out in the world. Like if I'm at the grocery store, I'm very friendly. But I don't want to have a conversation with strangers on a place like a plane. I just want to be to myself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have this theory, actually, that most people don't want to have conversations on planes. But I think for some people, it's like a nervous thing. Oh, I didn't think of it from that angle. Yeah. Like they might not really be all that interested in you. They just need to talk. Nervous talkers. Those people exist. Yeah. It's coming from an introvert. Like that's the last thing I would want to be doing if I was nervous. Last thing. I can't stand small talk. Really can't stand it. I've realized. Oh, I know. I hate it. It's just draining. Yes. Because you have to think of things to say. Yeah. Not a fan. You know, that's a really good distinction to make because I used to think that I didn't like just talking to people in general, but I think that that's the truth of it is that those kind of conversations, the small talk, oh my gosh, can you believe the weather, blah, blah, blah. That's what makes me feel awkward. Not the actual conversations where you're talking about real stuff. Yes, that's a great point because actually to go with the like person next to you on a plane storyline, if it was a really great deep conversation, we would be engaged. Yes. I would be engaged in it. Yeah. But if they're asking me what I do and where I live and where I grew up and my favorite restaurant in Pittsburgh, like, I don't, I don't want to talk about that stuff. Oh, I want to know about your favorite restaurant in Pittsburgh. But <laughs> other than that, <laughs> it's not open anymore. It's closed down. It was at the top of the Duquesne Incline. It's called the Georgetown Inn for any Pittsburghers out there. Oh. For any Inzers. I know they'll go, oh, that place was so good. I have good memories there. Welcome to the Viola Centric Podcast. We are two curious violists creating a safe place to have authentic and challenging conversations in the professional music world. I'm Liz. And I'm Steph. Let's jump in the deep end. So anyway, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Had a really great weekend. This weekend, Nat Phil premiered this new piece by Adolphus Hale Stork called Knee on the Neck, a Requiem, American Requiem. And it's meant to honor George Floyd. And it was just such an electric moment. Mm -hmm. Going into it, mm -hmm. it felt a lot like all the other preparations of concert programs that we've done in the past. But the performance of it really felt very special and like we were sharing something with the audience that was really meaningful. Mm -hmm. I loved that aspect of sharing new music. 
that it wasn't just some random new piece. It was one that was written in a moment that the composer and the librettist felt that needed to be emphasized and highlighted. And it felt like a moment in history. Yeah. Oh, 100%. And that people will study reflecting back on this time period and how the arts reflected what was happening in culture at the time. Yeah. I wasn't able to play this one, but over the course of the weeks as it was building up and I was seeing more about it and talking with our friends who are in the group about the event itself, I feel the importance seeing the articles being written about it. Mm -hmm. It's really an immense thing. It's really special, mm -hmm. incredibly poignant. And I'm proud to be involved in an organization that did that kind of work and, and put that kind of experience together for an audience. Mm -hmm. And for my colleagues who performed, it is history being made. Mm -hmm. I have often in the past two years thought about whether what we do is relevant. You know, we're not nurses, we're not doing social work to help bring people out of poverty. What am I doing to better the world? And this was the first time where I've actually felt that what I'm doing as my career is impacting people. I know that artists help people process and that's what a lot of us did during the pandemic. But this is the first time that I personally have felt like I was really making a difference. I didn't write it or anything like that, but just being there and performing it and sharing it with my abilities that I have, it felt like I was doing something. Yeah. I had this conversation many times pre-pandemic where I always felt like on the educational side of things, that's very easy to see. And I think all teachers would agree, like when you teach, you know that you're having an impact and that it's something that affects their lives. But I always had this struggle, especially on an orchestral stage, of feeling like what I was doing was completely selfish. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I've always felt like I do it for me. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that dichotomy is challenging sometimes. And so to have a concrete example in your life of something that you did that you know reached the people sitting there watching you and you mm -hmm. felt it. That is really what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Every conversation we have, this is what we're talking about, right? Yeah. It's reaching out from the stage to the audience and the community. And that was the most concrete example that I have felt in my lifetime. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. I hope it's inspiring for organizations everywhere mm -hmm. to consider how we're making those connections. Yeah. I feel that deeply. I decided to take a social media detox. Oh, yeah. How was that? I'm still going. I just felt like it was time. Huh? I don't know. There's this sort of cumulative effect, I think, that happens. When we're sharing, when we're taking in other people's information, there's just so much input and output going on into the algorithms and all of this stuff. And it felt congested. Yeah. So I'm trying to think about a schedule going forward, structure to it. Yeah. That definitely feels like something that I could use. Yeah, like a cleanse. A cleanse. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It makes the world smaller in a good way. Mm. Like you get trapped in a, a loop of like not living your life. Yes. <laughs> living other people's lives and whether you know it or not, creating a version of your life for online consumption. Of course. Yeah, definitely. I've been thinking a lot about this this weekend. So because I wasn't working... 
I got to go visit my sister and her birthday was on Saturday and my nephew's second birthday was on Friday. And we had very typical two-year-old birthday party on Friday, which was really fun. And then my sister's in-laws were in town. So they took the baby on Saturday night and the four of us went out for like an old school siblings night out. Oh, fun. We used to do this kind of stuff all the time, pre-baby and pre-pandemic. So it was really special. We went to this place called The Puttery, which is this indoor mini golf bar. (laughs) It was so much fun. And then I had, no kidding, Oku, oh my goodness, the best sushi I have ever had. Wow. Like my whole life. This restaurant is incredible. If you're in Charlotte, you got to go. If you've been there, you got to tell me. I can't say enough. I want to go there every time we're there. It was so (laughs) delicious. But I got to thinking about this because, you know, especially with a two-year-old, the moment he wakes up until he falls asleep for a nap or until he goes to bed at the end of the day, everything is this adventure. And all he's focused on is what's right in front of him, Mm. right? That's life. That is life right there. And the people around him are very focused on him as well. And it's just like one person. I get very externally focused on making an impact in a grander scale. It's just good to like think of the smaller things too. And most people live like that. Most people don't have this opportunity to play with 70 other people every week. Mm -hmm. And it's a different group of people and you're interacting. And it's like we get this altered state of reality doing what we do for a living. It almost feels like it can make us unrelatable to other people. Uh, right? <laughs> Not that we're like rock stars. My kids will be the first ones to bring me down, you know? Yeah. They're like, wait, what did you do this weekend? Oh, I don't care. What are we having for dinner? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we need that. Yes. Well, our guest this time is Melissa White. She's a violinist. She was a first prize laureate in the Sphinx competition in its inaugural year. And since then has spent her career connecting with audiences and connecting with students and musicians through her intermission sessions. And it was so great to talk with her. Liz, what were your impressions? Mindful is the word I thought of. Yeah. She's very present and thoughtful. And movement is a big part of her life. Yoga is a big part of her life. I just felt like it was so calm and just was a lovely conversation. We talked about her founding the Harlem Quartet right? and the work that they do in the community and jazz-inspired performances and Mm. incorporating improv and how uncomfortable that was in the (laughs) beginning, which I could totally relate to. Yep. (laughs) But she's got a really wide repertoire and she's performing new music. Yeah, She's really an artist that I really feel like is saying something with her performances and the music she chooses to program. Absolutely. And then when it comes to her relationship with yoga, I think that journey was really interesting too. Yes. <laughs> and she's just a lovely person. Yes. Like, like you said, she's just got such a calm presence and just yes. so put together and just, ooh, she's a vibe. Melissa White. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, she's got a great vibe. That's the best way to put it. (laughs) Yeah. So enjoy this conversation with Melissa White. We are all busy, especially those of us who teach music. We give everything to ensure our students' abilities and love of music are always growing and developing. We want to make sure each one has the right setup and instrument, but we barely have enough time to practice for ourselves sometimes. 
That's where Potter Violins can come in. Their sales team and technicians are also players and experts on all string things. You can send your students to try instruments, get properly sized, have their current instruments adjusted, or to pick out a new bow or other string accessory. You can have total confidence that they'll be taken care of. Potters will even ship what your students need anywhere in the United States. So take one thing off your plate and send your students over to Potter Violins, no matter what they need. And Potter Violins loves teachers so much, they want to offer you a 10% teacher's discount because you deserve it. Visit their flagship location in Tacoma Park, Maryland, their rental location in Gaithersburg, Maryland, or shop online from anywhere at potterviolins.com. As you know by now, we are thrilled to be sponsored by The Artgrest. They're a small business based in Rochester, New York, and one that we are proud to support. Aaron and Tigran literally started the company in their home workshop and continue to manufacture each Artgrest by hand and mail them out personally to every customer. And because they're a small business, they're now able to offer a new option just for you, customization. Now you can get your new Artgrest base with a favorite color, a pattern, or even a photo to make it unique to you. Yes, imagine a family or pet photo, your favorite sports team's colors, or your orchestra's logo on your Artgrest. Head over to our Instagram for a photo of our own customized bases, and you can also visit theartgrest.com to see some more examples. Really, the possibilities are endless. And you can feel confident knowing that your purchase is supporting the actual people who design and will be making your new shoulder pad with their own hands. Find their products at theartcrest.com. That's T-H-E-A-R-C-R-E-S-T.com. American violinist Melissa White has enchanted audiences and critics around the world as both a soloist and a chamber musician. A first prize laureate in the Sphinx competition, she has performed with such leading U.S. ensembles as the Cleveland Orchestra, the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, Colorado, Detroit, Pittsburgh, and internationally as well, performing across the globe in solo and recital performances. Melissa is a founding member of the Grammy award-winning New York-based Harlem Quartet, a supergroup of first prize laureates of the Sphinx competition. The quartet's mission is to bring classical music to inner city children, and they've shared their jazz-infused performances with audiences all over the world. And another of Melissa's passions is yoga which has led her to found the Intermission Program with fellow Sphinx laureate, Elena Urioste. And stateside, Liz and I had the pleasure of performing with her in her critically acclaimed February 2020 performance of Florence Price's first violin concerto. So it's very, very exciting for Liz and I to welcome and reconnect with you on a more personal level today. It's kind of like behind the music. Oh. <laughs> well, I agree. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Welcome. Welcome. We're so thrilled. Thanks. One way that people may know you is through your winning of the Sphinx competition. Mm-hmm. I am just in awe of the Sphinx competition and all of the opportunities that it's awarded people. You had the opportunity to perform with orchestra very early in your career. I'm just curious to hear about what you love about the organization, the opportunities it provides for people. I'd love to hear the insider scoop. Absolutely. (laughs) I'll give you all the insider scoop. Yes. 
I've been involved with the Sphinx organization since the inaugural year, which was 1998. Okay. Wow. I know. I'm dating myself. I was only two. (laughs) No, but I competed that inaugural year. I grew up in Lansing, Michigan. The competition originally happened in Ann Arbor, Michigan, only an hour away. They're now in Detroit. It's 90 minutes, so not far from my home. And I took third prize that first year. I went back the second year, took third prize again, took a year off, and then I won first prize in 2001. It was a true learning experience. And I will say from that very first year, I think there were about 12 to 13 participants in the first competition. And all of our parents were just so thrilled that we could be in this space together, seeing other musicians, young, who looked like us, Mm. doing what we do all across the country. And so they had a vision, these parents, of how great it'd be to have more programs. What if we could build an orchestra together? What if we could start to tour and perform together? Everything. And so now... 25 years later, to see what Sphinx has grown to be is just phenomenal. Mm -hmm. So they do have programming all year round. Their mission is diversity in classical music, changing the face of classical music. To see music truly be an art form enjoyed by all, not some, Mm -hmm. rather than just for privilege, making it accessible to everyone everywhere. And I love that. So it's an honor that in 2006, they were opening an office in Harlem. They wanted to put a group together of first prize laureates. And that's when they asked the original four members of Harlem Quartet if we would try this group out and do this project that was going to be funded by Target to take music into schools all around New York City. So we said yes. And it was through that project we found our chemistry on stage to really grab the audience where they are instead of expecting them to be somewhere else and bringing them in. But finding these pieces, take the A train. We had a conga that was written by Ilmar's father, who's Cuban. And so the kids could tap their toes, snap their fingers. And once they saw that being able to listen to music was something they could do with any genre, then when we went to Mozart and we told them, well, this is a dance, a minuet is a type of dance. And this would have been party music back in Mozart's time. So to give them that context, you saw their eyes light up and then they got really excited. And also to think about the representation they were seeing on stage, because for them, the people who play Mozart usually look like Mozart, right? Mm. White curly hair, (laughs) white skin. And so here we are doing all of these tunes, brown skin like them. And it was just a great connection. And we loved that chemistry. And it's a joy that we've been able to carry it on all these years. I love that so much. What a great mission. And to think about it being generated by that interest of parents wanting something for their children. Mm-hmm. And then to have it come to this point where you also have the ability to reach other children by being involved in the organization. Yes. And going out there and creating new generations of children mm-hmm. that are seeing that and how that can compound over time is really exciting. I'm curious, I would imagine that you all were classically trained, like seriously classically trained. Yeah. To pivot into including something that's a jazz standard or something that's from someone else's culture. How did that come about? And was it a comfortable shift to make to wear those different hats? Mm, Yes, I like that word comfortable because being on stage, (laughs) 
<laughs> tricky place. So you're right. We naturally came to it from a classical perspective. So Take the A-Train was our first jazz tune, but it was arranged. As our performances grew, we got our hands on Wynton Marcellus' string quartet at the Octoroon Balls. And the parts were not edited. So looking at the parts, we couldn't even decipher all of the notes because there were scribbles hand sketches from the time the Orion Quartet had recorded it. So we had to put it together orally with their recording. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. Well, that's jazz right there. Uh-huh. That Exactly. <laughs> so that process was the greatest teaching tool we didn't even know to ask for, but we could have had. And it took teamwork. We spent hours listening. Someone would have like a measure. They just didn't know what was happening. We would all listen for that measure, try different things. And in the end, we came up with our version. And we got to speak to Winton. And we told him about this process and wanted to ask him like, so what's the right answer? Did we get it right? Because, you know, as classical musicians, we're A-type. Like, tell us how it goes. We want it right. right yes. And he's like, no, you guys you're recreating a story. Let me tell you the story. And then you just keep recreating it every time you play it. So to this day, all these years later, on stage, we have so much fun making up how we do the sound effects for the stories or where we journey. And that allowed us to expand our playing and to really embrace what improv could be. And it inspired us then to listen to these great improvers. And we found a whole new respect. Once we learned the jazz form, then we rearranged our Take the A Train. So now we have a Harlem Quartet version. Awesome. That is so cool. I think many people can really relate to that and to really hear that it's okay to go about it that way. When I was in high school, I would listen to things on the radio or whatever, and I would try and figure it out. Yeah. And I was always obsessing over whether I got the right rhythm or the right notes. And to hear that you guys did that to figure it out, it's like jazz is accessible to all of us. But I think as classical musicians, you often think, oh, I could never do that. I could never make up my own thing or improvise it. It's true. Or go off book. Right. Imagine that. Now, when we work with students, we tell them so many composers are naturally improvers and some are really great. Mm -hmm. Yes. And what we see on the page is either their favorite version or the one that got there in time for the due date. Of course, we're not going to make up notes in Mozart, but it should feel spontaneous. It should feel like a conversation in real time that sometimes feels different or takes a different turn or surprises you in a new way. How free. Mm -hmm. Totally. I love that so much. And it's a total shift in how we were trained. Yes. I took a jazz styles and analysis theory class and I had to do this my senior year. We had transcriptions. It was a class that we focused on Coltrane and Thelonious Monk. And there's no sheet music. You have to listen to the recording and you have to do the chord analysis by yourself and you have to transcribe the solos by yourself and you're just doing it by ear. And the way you internalize music by doing that is totally different. Yeah. And opens up space in your head for your own creative. Absolutely. So what a cool shift for you guys to be able to do as a quartet. I can imagine that was really a fun challenge. Baptism by fire. Yes, it's true. (laughs) And to this day, we encourage each other to improv solos. And listen, mine can go real wrong. (laughs) There's one time, Omar is the first violinist, he fell off of his chair laughing. Yeah, because of what, he's like, Missy, I can't believe you did that. It's like, me neither. (laughs) (laughs) That is awesome. You also solo a lot with orchestras. Yes. 
curious to know, do the experiences that you've had with your quartet translate to being a soloist on stage? It is interesting to have that pair with my chamber music experience, because for me, it's hard not to think of music as a chamber music experience. Mm -hmm. So even when I'm the soloist, I'm thinking about who I get to make music with or who has started the conversation, perhaps in the orchestra, and then I'm coming in to carry it on or to say it again, but in a different way. And in a way, it makes me feel safer because I still get nervous. I don't actually like being the center of attention. When we played our concert, that's the first time I ever had learned and played the Florence Price Concerto Number no. 1. Wow. So it was huge. Oh my goodness, that was something. I'll always remember it fondly, not just because it was my final concert before lockdown, but my first time playing Florence Price, my first time playing a concerto by a Black female composer. So that felt really powerful to get to do. And now, luckily, I've played it a couple more times. So I'm excited to see it out there being played by others and just being programmed, generally speaking, as hopefully a new standard. Even these days, as you're soloing and you're performing these concerti for audiences, like you said, you're getting to play these pieces that not everyone has heard before, that you yourself are learning and presenting for the first times. So what an exciting thing to be the one to introduce an audience to the music of Florence Price. So what else are you preparing right now that you're excited about sharing? Ooh. (laughs) So actually, my next concerto I'm going to play is The Butterfly Lovers. It's a piece by a Taiwanese composer, and I'm going to be playing it with the Chicago Symphonietta. Man. And May Anton. Yay. Yay. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited. She's something else. She's a firecracker. (laughs) This piece, I can't imagine really doing it with anyone else. I'm super excited about what she's going to bring to it. Mm. And the Chicago Symphonietta paired it with a fashion designer. I don't know if we had hit record, but for the audience, we were talking fashion before you (laughs) came into this. We're real athleisure today. But for this concert, a fashion designer in Chicago, her name is Carly, is designing a dress to go with the piece. Yes. What? I just had a fitting. It's going to start as a cocoon. There are little latches where I'll like slowly start to open fabric. And at the end, it'll be a butterfly and one of the flaps will go around my wrist so there will be a wing and she's gonna hand paint it oh my stop i've sort of never been more excited to be on stage oh my god that sounds so amazing and then i don't even have to pack a dress like all i need (laughs) i need some black leggings and the dress is gonna be there that's incredible yeah That's amazing. I love it. And I love artistic and creative crossovers like that. Yes, I agree. I mean, the way movie theaters get filled, I think we should be packing our concert halls the same way. But we've got to start thinking about the crossover. When you see a movie, so many arts are involved, different type of art forms. It's just about all we have to offer and bringing it together in a creative way that can be even more amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We think of these art forms as existing in a vacuum sometimes. Yes. Like you see art in a gallery, you see music in the concert hall, you see fashion on the runway. But really, like you said, it's a collaboration. And I think people could really relate to it because somebody who wouldn't go to an art gallery to just take in the art might go to a concert hall to see a concert. Mm -hmm. So if you can bring that into their periphery, in that way, then we're all benefiting. That's true. Oh, there's so many avenues you can take with that. 
whether it's fashion or art or food or dance, dance or electronics like film. I mean, there's just so many things that would create more of an all-encompassing experience for people. Yes. And I think you referenced this earlier, Melissa, when you were talking about the mission for Sphinx to get more people interested and in the seats and to make it more accessible. Mm -hmm. And culturally, it's a big ask for us right now. And I think there's a lot of generation of exciting ideas like this. Mm -hmm. It's my sincere hope that we just keep leaning in. I was just talking about programming the other day with my quartet. And we were saying what we never want to do again is have that standard format that's like, here is a classical quartet followed by something new that you're not quite sure about. And then an intermission and then the big piece. Yes. <laughs> we had this vignette idea, like you put little things in between movements and you play something else or just something different. Yes. My quartet loves to do that. We call it surf and turf. Yes. Ooh, oh my God. That's so great. Take it. Fly with it. Everyone. <laughs> that's so good. First of all, it's delicious. <laughs> it's fun for us. And we have found it's also fun for the audience. It keeps things fresh. And the other thing is when you think about how people take in music today, Maybe it's on the radio, but a lot of times it's on Spotify or Apple Music, whatever it is, it is sort of like a shuffle yeah. or a playlist you've curated for yourself or one someone else made up, but you just want to hear how it goes. And how often do people put on a record that is just the record in that order? There's a time and a place, so I'm not knocking it, but we switch things up for ourselves. I think we should do that in the concert halls. Mm -hmm. I think it's an active choice. I think about this all the time because sometimes I'm like, I'm going to listen to this whole album that I really love. Yep. But 90% of the time, I'm just like, I want to listen to this song I really love. And then, oh, I want to listen to this song I really love. And I think I'll listen to this piece now or this movement of this piece that I really love. This movement. I know. Yes, I agree. The whole work, eh, probably not in one <laughs> sitting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Almost never, unless I'm learning it. Yeah. And so when you think about the majority of people living today out in the world, that's how they're consuming entertainment. Yes, it is. And then I also think with young people and education, what if art weren't just an hour of their day? What if it truly were built in? Mm. So like spoken word, I think a lot about how particularly in the black culture, spoken word has been an art form that's natural and just sort of comes or it's just, mm. it is, right? And so what if you allowed kids to do spoken word with what they're doing for history. If that's the test, can you put all of these facts into some sort of delivery in an art form that resonates with you and will probably help you remember it better than just writing down 1948, da-da-da? Mm -hmm. You can't contain art. It's not in a box. It's not in a room. It, it is everywhere. Just in it. I was going to segue into your work with yoga and how you're incorporating that love that some people would think is completely separate from music. Mm -hmm. But for you, it is completely intertwined. Yes. So how did you get into yoga? And how did you see that connection? I first got into yoga while doing my master's. So I was in Boston at NEC. And my teacher, Donald Weilerstein, he's very about feeling how the body works when you're playing and making music. And so he asked if I had ever tried yoga. And I had had like a sporadic experience, but basically my answer was no. And he's like, oh, 
I think maybe you should try it. The way the sit bones can feel the vibrations as you pull the music is just magical. So anyways, I had this friend going to a hot yoga class and she invited me and I was like, okay, the time is now. So I go and it was a set sequence, 26 postures, two breathing exercises, and you do every posture twice. I loved that you immediately tried something again so you could see how it works see where you could potentially make progress or just not feel as crappy, whatever's working for you that day. Mm -hmm. I love that it was a hot room, so you were sweating. It felt like I actually worked out. And then I love that there was no downward facing dog in this sequence because I always thought yoga was not for me since I need to use my hands to play. Yeah, That whole down dog is a lot of pressure at the wrist. If it's not cued correctly or taught correctly, right? If you're not informed on how to do it. I loved it. And I just started to go regularly. And I loved that I could go anywhere in the world because it was always the same. Fast forward, I met up with my dear friend, Elena Uriosti. We were at Curtis together. And then when I moved to New York, she was here in New York, we became roommates. And we started to talk about how separately we had come to love yoga and find a journey through the practice that worked for us. And not just physically, but how it had transformed our music making. So on the yoga mat, staring in the mirror, doing these classes for 60 or 90 minutes, whatever it was, just accepting yourself or finding a point of acceptance and acknowledgement for where you are in that space and the strength you have to get you through whatever you've gotten through. Like even if you laid on your mat, you got to the room. So applause, right? Really starting to build that relationship with yourself. And then the focus, the mental aspect, I loved practicing a true focus for 60 seconds on whatever posture you're doing was helpful for me on stage. Usually there are just little gnarly passages. If you can put your focus there for 30 seconds, you're out of it, you're back to music making. And then working on the tiny muscles that we need to give us strength to support our joints, which is what makes everything work. And finding that connection helps me to feel stronger in my body, but also playing music is a physical practice. And so being in whatever shape it is you need to do that practice, the travel, a bad night of rest, but going on stage, being fresh, delivering so people don't even know what you've been through. It takes work. It takes practice. So I loved that yoga helped me to connect to my body in a way that made me feel more powerful as a musician on stage. It makes so much sense. Thank you. I would agree. I would agree. (laughs) (laughs) That journey of self is the one that sticks out to me. Yes and how much that informs us as musicians. So we don't think about that, I think, enough. It's something that doesn't come up in our training, at least historically hasn't come up in our training, that knowing who you are as much as possible actually does help you be a better musician. Mm -hmm. And I like the idea of that being a movement practice that leads you in that direction. I think yoga is really great for that. That's so true. Yes. Sorry, I meant to actually share that. I now do do downward facing dog. (laughs) I don't just do one kind of yoga. Ironically, I went for yoga teacher training from winter 2019 into new year 2020. I spent it in Goa, India, getting my teacher training. Oh, wow. wow. It was in vinyasa and ashtanga practices. And then that is really what I think got me through the first part of lockdown. I did more yoga 
than I ever have in my life. We all needed to move in our space, right? So I started to connect with people virtually, guiding movement. And I had never seen myself as just being a yoga teacher, but for a few months, I was and it felt phenomenal. I loved it. It's funny because I knew who you were from the Florence Price concert. And then one of my best friends found out that you were doing that virtual workshop that summer. I think people who stepped up and offered something for those of us mm -hmm. who were in a position to be unemployed at the time or severely underemployed mm -hmm. and sort of reeling from that experience and all of the struggle that that entailed those early months of 2020 is really special that those things were there. And I think that probably what you offered in those days as a teacher, it saved a lot of mm -hmm. people, a lot of struggle, you know, it uplifted people. Oh my goodness. You just gave me chills. Well, first of all, thank you. But it's true, not even just on the side of receiving. I think as artists, truly, we spend our lives sharing. And when that felt like it was cut off, that was what was heartbreaking. Couldn't make music together on Zoom. It just didn't work. So to be able to share a flow, but still some sort of like soul connection. Yeah, you're right. It saved my life too. Yeah, I love that. That's so great. So we haven't really heard the genesis of intermission itself. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> intermission came about over our dining room table. So I was roommates with Elena and we were just talking about how all the years we were going to summer camp as a teenager practicing for hours. We luckily didn't get injured, but there was no talk about how to keep yourself safe from a physical standpoint. It was, once again, just no perfect. Just drill it in as many times as you need, and you stay there for all the hours that it takes. Yep. But if you practice smarter, if you start to learn how your body learns, how it works, how it remembers, and how it delivers... It's a full mind-body practice to play an instrument. And also the mental state, if like young people nowadays are so anxious and they're stressed and they're depressed and we see where it comes from, but at the same time, we're not doing anything to help empower them to be able to get themselves through. And so we thought about what if there were an hour of the day carved out for students to just learn to be them to learn how it feels, to learn how they could be stronger. And so we started to talk about this camp for young people. And then we got to the sleeping part and we we're like, yeah, but who watches them at nighttime? Cause, uh, uh, we can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> so then we went into um, talking about a retreat for adults our age. We were like, well, maybe our friends would come. They know how to watch themselves. They don't <laughs> I love that that was the reason. It was like, we don't want to be chaperones. So <laughs> we know what we did during summer camp. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> honestly yes exactly so we started as a retreat in 2017 we ran our first retreat it happens in vermont and we couldn't believe it but people signed up and that first cohort of people turned out to be the most lovely community and we're still in touch we call it the intermish family and some of the conversations were the best part just talking through all these big feels we have and how we deal with it going back on stage when you feel like you mm. failed on stage but the next night you got to do it again right mm. and so people with huge jobs were there and hearing that they feel how someone who is a freelancer feels and the struggles might be different but they can manifest in the same way that connection was really powerful. And after that, we just saw what a need there was to have a safe space to be able to talk about these things and then to be able to flow and move and feel like you're getting stronger and better. Luckily, the retreats continued on. 
And I'm happy to say that the summer will be back in person for the first time since lockdown. August 15th through 22nd, we'll be in Manchester, Vermont at the Wilburton Inn. And we just opened up applications. So we say applications, but listen, it's not an audition. We got to know your name and email to register you. So it's really, <laughs> it's a registration. <laughs> and we really, truly just want to be able to present something to help with wherever people are in this moment. Yeah. So there will be an in-person component for those who can attend, but also a virtual component for those who just want to participate. Mm -hmm. What I love about this is, again, you're really focused on the person and what their individual needs or wants are. And it's something that can be structured for each person that attends. Yes. And I think it's so important because is it mostly professional musicians who are attending? Mm -hmm, exactly. We have had a couple amateur musicians. The thing is, musicians spend their lives pouring out. Mm. And we think there just needs to be a space where we pour into our community. And we experience something as musicians that's extremely unique. And to be able to share without feeling like you're on stage or being judged or misunderstood is rare, but necessary. I love that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That idea that we're always putting something out there and to bring something back in. I just, I think it takes a long time for many people in our field to understand that that's important. Mm -hmm. And to learn to trust your body. It takes time, it takes space, it takes practice what that feels or sounds like. Is it going to be a sound? Is it going to be a noise? Is it going to be a pain? But there's power if you just let yourself be the guide. And it's hard to explain, but you're right. It's not the same guide for everyone. So when you start to move and you start to notice things in your body, you do start to feel what that means. And then you do start to trust that you'll respond accordingly. And more times than not, we will. But if we're go, go, go and constantly doing things like we don't hear the subtleties of our body. Yeah, it's about listening, but also it's a process, right? Yes. It's like an awakening, mm -hmm. especially if you haven't had this type of awareness before. I'm just thinking about my own journey and it actually started during the pandemic when I changed my whole setup. I decided that I wanted to try and learn to play without a shoulder rest. Mm -hmm. A big part of that process was figuring out a new relationship between my body and my instrument that wasn't dependent on something supporting the weight of that instrument yes. and trusting it to do that work. And at first it's scary, but just by going through that process, I found myself being more aware of the way that I stand the way that I play when I'm sitting, the alignment of my spine, the way that my head works on top of my spine. It's a new thing and it's never too late. Yes. It is never too late. I love that. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. That's awesome. Congrats, Steph. Well, thanks. But I mean, it's not over. I'm learning more every day. <laughs> but the hardest part is the start. Yeah. Right. Like even the thought can be something you think all the time, but the moment you start it, yeah. Yeah. From there, it's a seed. You've planted it grows. Well, and it's the letting go too. It's a, I don't have the answers right now. Yes. I'm going to go into this territory that's uncharted for me mm -hmm. and trust that it's going to all work out. And that can be scary. Yes. Yeah. I think that's what the pandemic was for a lot of us is like this uncharted territory of just who knows what's on the other side of this. What does tomorrow look like? Yeah. It was scary, but we're all kind of figuring out 
that we can just trust, right? Mm -hmm. Trust. And also, listen, I love what you said. I think it's still a sort of scary. We went through trauma and I think we're still going through it. So like you said, the fear is real. It's a big thing, but that trust can be powerful. And then I think we also saw that simplicity is actually quite lovely. Yes. And slowing down is okay. Mm -hmm. It should be okay. There's a pace for every part of life. And it's... Oh, I love that. Yes. (laughs) I write the word trust in a journal every day. Love that too. I have a ritual and it's one of my words. I write it. I write trust and I underline it every morning practically of my life. Yeah. For this reason, (laughs) because Mm -hmm. in all aspects of life, it's hard to do that. But when you do... There's a release, like both reference, let, just letting go mm-hmm. of things, letting go of the yeah need. Mm-hmm. And I want to reference this back to movement, actually, because I think it's really interesting. I've been in yoga studios where I feel completely at home, where I feel like the training is flexible and it's individualized and there was a studio I loved they didn't have mirrors at all actually Mm -hmm. and the reason was they didn't want people comparing themselves to each other in the studio now I am a very mirror oriented movement person (laughs) so for myself that was a little unnerving but I think the important thing is knowing that you don't have to do some picture perfect version of a pose that you saw in a book that you have to do what feels good for your own body and that everybody's body is structured slightly differently. To your point about when you've been in experiences where it's practiced for hours a day until you're in pain, that was the norm for all of us. And so to shift out of that, I think for a lot of people is really challenging, really challenging. Yes. The word notice comes into our practice for movement, Mm -hmm. but now into my practice for violin as well, all the time. And when I work with young people, so Elena and I are on faculty at the Heifetz Institute. So to also bring it full circle, we do work with young people. Intermission is not only for adults. Yay. (laughs) I love this too. And now you don't have to chaperone them overnight. (laughs) (laughs) They're well tended to parents. Don't be scared. It's not us. Yes. (laughs) But working with young people, we often have them pause to notice. And sometimes that's the hardest part. They're wiggly. What are we noticing? Mm-hmm. That they're what's happening? Anything uh-huh. happening? Nothing's happening. Should I talk? <laughs> I should laugh. Yeah. I'll. It's not easy to notice. Even that's part of the practice. But you're absolutely right. No single body is the same. And I love that it's not the same. So mm-hmm. when there are teachers who are teaching anything and they tell you it's supposed to look like this or feel like this, no, it's not potentially. And that's why we bring in the amazing movement teachers that we do for the retreat, because they work with every individual person to help them notice and see the alignment that is best for their body. So as musicians, oftentimes we do something that's asymmetrical. And to simply bring someone to neutral and work from there could potentially be a painful or worse could be problematic could create injury and we're not coming to a retreat to get injured so seeing where people are working from there and then as you said just showing them that their body will tell them what's right and wrong and they should listen always it takes a little bit of time and presence so starting a day with a little bit of meditation 
it's a good thing. If you want to reference it as just a little bit of breathing, that's a great way to put it for someone who may hear the word meditation and go, oh, God, I can't do that. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. No, we've even had people at the retreats who were like three days in and during share time, one person raised their hand and said, so I know I paid to be on this retreat, but what exactly is meditation? Am I doing it right when I go? I just show up, but is that right? Yeah. Everyone, we died laughing. Yes, yeah. we are actually just by <laughs> by asking that question. Yep, it's right. <laughs> Fantastic. And then we also we've had people say like, so I trained to be here. I think you know my yoga's ready. But if not, just just let me know. <laughs> <laughs> that would be me. <laughs> We're like you guys. No, none of this exists. We've had people who have never stepped on a yoga mat before come. Awesome. We've had those who just finished teacher training in the same room on their yoga mat. Awesome. Everyone benefits and it really is an individual experience. Mm. What a foreign thing for us classically trained musicians to hear. Right? (laughs) That there is no such thing as good enough. (laughs) What's the rubric? What does that even mean? (laughs) How do I beat myself up? I don't have any (laughs) standards. Our movement instructors spend a lot of time, of course, in a yoga room teaching yoga. So for them to be in a room with musicians. Oh, God. They're like, you guys, I've never seen such straight yoga mats. And when we cue to like put the props here, roll the mat, like it's like perfect. Usually (laughs) the yoga studio is so messy. No one's listening. That's hilarious. (laughs) I want to talk more about what we're giving to kids when we give them this movement this new exposure to this is the way that your body can feel. So what are the sessions like for kids? Are they virtual? Can people get their students in touch with you? How do we get our kids more exposed to this beautiful offering? Mm, Yes. So we have continued to do virtual sessions and we're happy to find a time to do that with students. We also have started going back in person with students. So we'll be in person at HyFITS this summer. And honestly, every session looks different. We try to cater it to what the students need or want or where we feel their attention is for that session. Sometimes it means wiggling a lot and then starting to put those wiggles into something that might be a little more held Mm. or a little more structured, or sometimes it feels like they're a little too serious. So maybe letting it be a a little sillier just to sort of get them out of their heads as well and more into their bodies. We always do like to leave students just with some very basic warm-ups to do because although they might not do them every day in a disciplined way, there comes a point where something happens that they need to know, you know, I felt tension in my arm, like what's an arm stretch. And so just to have basic stretches for our body parts is something we give them. And you'd be surprised every single session, we allow time for Savasana, which it basically translates to dead corpse pose, but it's Usually people's favorite pose is the one at the end where you just lie down on your yoga mat Uh and take a nap if you wish. (laughs) That's my favorite. Yeah. Right? Yeah, totally. (laughs) So we end each session with young people in Savasana. And we're always amazed at how still, how silent they're laying. Even these kids appreciate a moment of rest. 
And I know for parents, they're like, but they'll never take a nap. Listen, I know. That's why we were like, who's going to watch them? (laughs) 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 But after putting them through an experience where they're really concentrated and working with their own bodies and thinking from head to toe, alignment, all of the things, and at the end to just lie there and know that they're reaping benefits from being in Savasana is a powerful thing. And we always feel super successful when Savasana comes. We're like, oh, look, we did it. We didn't do it. They did it, but it's fun for all. What a beautiful lesson for us all, though, that sometimes laying on the floor is an acceptable practice, that we don't always have to be go, go, go all the time. A hundred percent. And that we need those moments. Yes. It is a need. Mm -hmm. We get very good at telling ourselves we don't need it. Yes. Mm -hmm. I think we just, once everything is in motion, it's just easy to keep going in motion. I always think about that referencing the pandemic. The way I always described my experience was that I was going 100 miles an hour (laughs) until everything shut down and then to have total momentum stop. That was an adjustment. But now I'm so grateful because it made me aware of the need for that downtime. And I feel so protective of it now. Yes. I don't think we were recording when we talked about the feeling of overwhelm and how that happens to us. But having the tools and giving yourself permission at some point to just slow down. It's not just something that's a luxury. And I think we get into our heads that it's a luxury to slow down, but I actually think it's essential Mm -hmm. for us to stay in tune with who we are as individuals. Mm -hmm. For sure. So I'm curious to know if you were talking to somebody who is very new to this idea of having a movement practice that helps inform them as musician, identifying self, like things you would want them to know from your early start on that path. I'd like to think that everybody knows how this feels, but Somebody could be listening who has never taken this journey before. So Mm -hmm. that's very true. And actually, I hope someone is. (laughs) And what I would say is your movement doesn't have to look like anyone else's movement. Mm. So I know we've talked a lot about yoga. It happens to be something I love. It resonates with me, but it doesn't have to resonate with you. Finding a way to move your body in a way that works for you, that feels good, that creates a space where you can sort of escape or take your mind somewhere that's beneficial to you is what's most important. So I have lots of friends who are runners. That's what it is for them. I have cyclist friends. Movement, like everything else, is unique. It can be yours. And I think now, luckily, there are things you can just try virtually. You don't even have to necessarily spend money to find out you hate something or love something. You can have a little taste of it in your home and keep it or never do it again. (laughs) (laughs) But finding something that works for you and knowing that you know your body the best. So waiting until you think you have the best teacher or you think your body looks like this or you think your body feels like that, it's right here, it's right now with the body you have and you'll know when it's right. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, That's great Mm -hmm. advice. And then it might change, too. Yes, it could evolve. Yeah, that's so true stuff. And this gets into that idea of health, and that looks different for everybody, too. And I really embracing that in a big way. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yeah, And also, it's contagious. Just one thing leads to another. You start to move your body, and then moving your body somehow makes you feel like, 
I would like to rest my body. So maybe sleep becomes better. And then with good sleep, then the world opens up. Mm-hmm. Anything's possible with good sleep, right? Mm-hmm. So then you have mental space to think about what you're putting in your body. And really, it's one step at a time. I love it. So great. Yay. This has been so much fun. Yeah. I know it has. Listen, my life could use this on the regular. Oh, let's Aww. make it a date. <laughs> I'm happy to be introduced to your podcast. I'll join your listeners. Yay. <laughs> Aw, thank you, Melissa. What you've shared is so great. And I don't know, Steph, I sort of feel like, mm-hmm. Melissa, you've actually given me an opportunity to just slow down yes. for the last hour or so. I feel the same way. Thank you. This conversation has felt like an intermission. So thank you for that. From you too. Thank you both. Thank you so much for listening today. And thanks also to our season two sponsors, Arkrest and Potter Violin. Another thanks to Alto Clef Gifts, where you can purchase viola-centric shirts and mugs and a variety of other fun items featuring our beloved Alto Clef. The viola-centric theme music was written and produced by J.P. Wogeman and is performed by Steph and myself. You can support our future episodes by supporting our sponsors through our PayPal link or Venmo and by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. And please consider sharing your favorite episodes with your music-loving friends. Thanks again for listening. Let's talk soon.